Law Focus Podcast, bringing you the facts, handing you your rights. This is Law Focus. Welcome to Law Focus, the show with the staunch focus on the law. My name is Bezo Shrinda and I'll be your guardian of the law for the evening. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for helping us make this show the best of the best. We are moving into the second half of the year and we're still on our theme on socio-economic rights. This evening we're looking at section 29, subsection 1, paragraph A of the Constitution. And that is the right to basic education. Now, this right has been one of the most interesting rights. It's going to be connected to section 28, which is the right of children. Um, one of the basic effects about the right to basic education is the fact that most children who are in primary school and high school are all under 18. Therefore, not all, but the general uh, stigmata is that they are all under 18 and therefore they are all minors and they fall within the ambits of section 28. Now, that right has to be finished with section 7, subsection 2 of the constitution and that is the fact that uh, when an organ of state is exercising any public power or rather rendering any socioeconomic rights, it has to respect, promote, fulfill and protect all rights in the constitution and that includes socioeconomic rights. Now, on our focus of section 29, subsection 1, will be assisted by Equal Education and will also be assisted by the Center for Child Law to interpret and reinterpret Section 29, Subsection 1, Paragraph A. And that is an unqualified right to, to the right to basic education. Now, one of the basic, um, or one of the most important rulings that which I have read ever since I began researching on this topic has been one that has been made by Juma Masjid, um, whereby the Constitutional Court actually, argue, actually, actually held the fact that all necessary fa- a facilitation of all um, equipment that may be needed in order to furnish the right to basic education should be given to children that is stationary, that is textbooks and so forth. Now, the most famous t- case that we have seen the right to basic education being interpreted has been the Juma Masjid. And we're going to be talking at length with it. You're going to be at the disposal of the Center for Child Law. We'll be speaking to the director from there. Uh, you're going to also be at the disposal of Ms. Ziboga Sisilana, um, who is from the, cent- uh, from the uh, S- Center for Child Law. Uh, Equal Education Law Center and she'll be speaking to us about what the right to basic education basically means and where we can take it from here. We'll also be discussing the norms and standards um, to to finishing the right to basic education which is one of the policies that which have been passed by the Minister of uh, Education. It's going to be a fun packed show and we are looking forward to not just learning from these people but also sharing our views but also learning from you from home. Um, we'll be reading out most of your views uh, on the show. Um, At the heart of it all, it's looking at how socioeconomic rights in this country, which is part of the research of Law Focus, is how socioeconomic rights have been finished in the country currently and how the right to basic education differs from all of the other socioeconomic rights in the way in which it's, it's, it's being interpreted from a principal perspective, principal perspective. And you are going to be at the assistance of that. A Law Focus listener, please stay tuned. For now, we are going to get into the legal hotspots. You're still listening to Law Focus. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. And for our Legal Hotspots, we are looking at uh, the most interesting three stories of this week. And that is the fact that uh, the life as a many families do receive their compensation. Secondly, we are looking at one of the most important cases in labor law, that which is going to the constitutional court, or rather has already been heard and we are waiting for a judgment. And the third case is looking at how the government has actually brought in um, what they refer to as Operation Pakisa, uh, which is going to leave uh, land for tenants. To get into it, um, the first story is looking at the fact that um, 
the families of, of the 134 life as a demon victims actually have received compensation from the Gauteng provincial government. So uh, we had led that the arbitral awards that which have been given by the, the former Deputy Chief Justice, Dikang Moseneke, have actually uh, came to life and we are seeing movement in that regard. Um, the interesting thing is that uh, the Houting Premier David Makura has actually said that the office of the Premier has actually paid out 159 um, million to all of the 134 claimants uh, who were part of the alternative dispute resolution process. So that is the arbitration that which was chaired by um, our Honourable Dikang, Dikang Musenek. Um, I mean, interestingly so, these payments were included recently, but interestingly so is the story that we, which underlies life is a demand, but also un- underlies our conception of what compensation is. And I think that as an open debate um, out there as legal scholars and legal enthusiasts, is how the, arbit- the compensation process works in, in the country in all situations, in, in all delete situations, um, and perhaps in contractual situations. But I understand in contractual situations, since it's there, since it's purely on patrimonial, patrimonial basis, it's not really up, up for discussion. But if you look at delict situations, especially in personal injury claims, uh, you end up asking yourself, besides all of the hospital expenses, the future and the past, um, how does one compensate the amenities of of another person and or rather the disfigurements and pain and suffering that which that person has dealt with? We have done quite extensive research in this issue. And one of our major conclusions is that it's a very difficult issue to deal with. But rather, the little that which the law can do is to uh, give a bit of satisfaction to say that we are sorry for what has happened and therefore as a result to compensate for your pain this is the little that uh, the, the, the the respondent or the defendant can do and that is what the compensation in this case was about because i don't think that there's anything that the Houting provincial government can do to compensate for the lives of the people um or rather for to the families that which have lost the lives of the people uh, and it's very important to understand that thanks to section 27 for pushing this case uh they've done quite immense work and i think that uh it's going to be work celebrated for many years to come now in in our second story the constitutional court recently has had a case um and this case or rather the mantra of this case from a factual perspective is that it's going to determine to what extent uh, an employer is allowed to slash salaries and benefits in order for itself to maximize profits or rather to save the business um because in my understanding the respondent is actually stating that uh, because of the circumstances of the retail space they've had to change the benefits of their employers and 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 their their employers and some of the salaries they had to change salaries and also change the ways in which they used to pay their salary the salaries of their employee employees now this case is between the south african commercial catering and allied workers with union and the woolworths um, companies now one of the fundamental issues in this case lies at the heart of our country because the majority of the people who move around in this country commuting with public transport work in 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 retail stores and because they work in retail stores their entire reality is shaped and reshaped by the jobs that they worked either by the hours that they spend at work and by the salary that they get now these two factors shape and reshape their lives and now this case is looking at that fundamental um, of our society because this case is looking at 
how Woolworths has actually uh, reduced some of the benefits that we should employ employees used to get. And one of it is that it came with a program called Flexi Time. Now, in this program, uh, all full-time employer, employees had to move from their full-time program because they were full-time employees and get into a flexi time. Now, in this flexi time, it meant that you, they, had, they, they, they had different shifts. And now, without, besides working 9 to 4, now you could work from 10 to 2 in the evening at 8 or, or something of that nature. And now, again, that reshaped their lives. But one of the most interesting features of that flexi time arrangement was that people could could work a three out of four Sundays uh, and well, basically work on weekends, but also work three out of, th- of four Sundays of the, of the month. And in all of, in out of these three Sundays, they didn't have overtime. Now, and and also shifting their shifts or changing their shifts, perhaps from ten to eight, or perhaps from from ten ten a.m. to eight p.m. That also changed the dynamic in which they received overtime. Now, this is a very interesting approach uh, by by Woolworths. But now the the, the Sakao, South African Commercial Catering and Allied Workers Union, is actually arguing that uh, this was unfairness. It was a discrimination on the employ employees. Uh, and that it was both substantive unfairness and procedurally unfair. It was substantively unfair in the sense that it uh, it, it limited um, the lives of the people and and rather had this way they they were not solving the wage inequality by introducing this program. And that was the argument by Sakau. And there were many other arguments um, um, in, in in the approach that which was taken. But for me, the stronger case is one on procedural procedural unfairness. Because what what the, the the retail store there did is that they they told their full time employees that they had they had two choices either retrenchment and they get their severance packages, or they get into the flexi time program and still keep perhaps their severance packages. And for those who refused to to change from the option of full time to this flexi time, uh, actually got dismissed. And these are forty four members, and and this last section is brought on behalf of these forty four members. Now. First, the, one of the procedural unfairness is that Woolworths did not involve Sakao in the voluntary stage. That is the stage in which the, uh, the, the full-time employees moved into the flexi time. The second one is that during this voluntary stage, they clearly had no intention of negotiating. So they didn't negotiate with, with the employees. They actually let them know this is how things are going to be done uh, and these are your options. Therefore, not what do you think should be done or whatever. Now, that clearly shows that they didn't have equal bargaining power. And I think Bagazin versus Napier is actually good authority on this issue written by, by the, the former, former Deputy Chief Justice Deri Kang Museneke, explaining how uh, bargaining power works and, and how it doesn't apply in standard contracts, but whether that, rather that it applies in labor law. But now, if you read some of the most interesting judgments in, in labor law, they're written by Chris Jafta. Justice Chris Jafta, you would learn, and Zondo as well, you would learn that one of the fundamental issues that these both of these two learned judges have brought to the table about the retail space and, and about the labor law space is that most of the workers, because of their lack of education, their lack of understanding what is going on, in actual fact, never have bargaining power. And it's something that needs to be addressed, either through legislature, and thankfully, currently, this can be brought through um, the jurisprudence. Now, how the court is going to interpret this matter is going to shape and reshape the lives of many in this country because this is not the only retail store that is doing this. There are many other retail stores. Now, is it the nature of, the, of business in the retail space in the country 
or rather in the micro business space or is it the nature of the of the philosophy that which was adopted in terms of the neoliberalism and new neocolonialism now that is an open question for later for experts later and we would love to have a show on that but now currently this case is going to that court and is going to open many doors in terms of how we interpret and reinterpret our issues uh, in the in this neoliberal space now Without taking it any further, we'll have a further discussion on this law focus listener. Let's get into how Operation Pakisa is actually prioritizing land reform initiatives. The deputy president um, has actually said that meanwhile that the Department of Rural Development and Land Reform in partnership with the Department of Agriculture, Forestry and Fisheries, they've actually hosted an, hosted an Operation Pakisa on Agriculture and Land Reform. And this is going to this was launched by the president on the 24th of February last year. This uh, this smart agri villages and the accelerated land redistribution uh, and development initiatives are some of the initiatives prioritized by the Operation Pakisa to address the plight of labor tenants and farm dwellers. Now, understand that these departments have engaged with different stakeholders to solicit their commitment and participation. Now, through this program, government will acquire agricultural land to promote smallholder production of high-value horticulture and small livestock farming within 10 to 60 kilometers rural service areas. Now, I don't understand how this is going to play out, but it seems like quite a legit program, and we would love to see how, how it's going to benefit those who are in the most vulnerable space, and those are, those are tenants in farms. Now, Deputy President has actually said that this includes the development of service land and provision of bulk infrastructure. Uh, and it has also went in conjun- conjunction with local municipalities, which is far more importantly. Uh, and we also have commercial banks, which will be assisting uh, development finance institutions and private sector land developers. Uh, we hope to see that in, w- with all of these 54 farms, uh, over the next three years, there will be improvement and the lives of labor tenants uh, in farms will, will will actually be improved. Low focus listener, um, without taking it any further, those are the legal hotspots for this week. You're still listening to Low Focus. Rounding up all, all the top all stories, the of, the stories of the week is Legal Hotspots. Law Focus, handing you your rights. Welcome back to Law Focus, and I'm still sitting with me, Basil Shirenda, right here, and I'm your guardian of the law once again. Um, and this evening, we are discussing the right to basic education. Uh, that is at the heart of the development of our future. Uh, that is our children, and but also far more importantly, as how the right has been interpreted in court, uh, along with how activists have actually fought to 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 get children to class basically and on the line we actually have an expert uh miss karabo oza who's a deputy director of the center for child law and she's going to speak to us about what the center for child law has done and also give us a clear understanding of the right to basic education miss karabo welcome to the show thank you very much for having me i mean you find law focus at, uh, at at a very critical and important time of of our of our calendar where we are looking at socio-economic rights, but also we are trying to celebrate um, some of our victories um, socio-economically and, and also speak about some of our challenges. And th- this evening we are discussing the right to education. Uh, can we please start off with what is the Center for Child Law? What do you do? Okay, so the Center for Child Law is an organization which is um, a non-governmental one. Obviously, we based at the University of Pretoria. Um, uh, and what we do is um, children's rights litigation, um, constitutional litigation, and advocacy. Um, the aim is to really make sure that the rights that children have in the Constitution become a reality. Um, so 
we've done a lot of cases over the years um, to try and ensure that, um, you know, court judgments at least assist to make sure that the rights of children are enforced and respected. And, and so how, how do you do that? What are the constituencies within the organization? How does it work? So we do research. Obviously, you have to understand your problems that you're facing in order to be able to know how to challenge them. We do advocacy, um, and more importantly, we do litigation. Um, and our litigation can be challenging uh, existing law, um, action by government officials or private of, um, private uh, persons who are not respecting the rights of children. Um, and uh, once we have judgments, we try and do our best to ensure that they are implemented to ensure that the children for whom we, we uh, were litigating um, actually get the recourse that the court has ordered. And I can also imagine that you also become amicus to court, so you make certain submissions to guide the court in inter- interpreting rights, but particularly in this case, the right to basic education. Yeah, so an amicus, uh, I mean, is one way of getting involved in the case. So when we're not bringing cases ourselves as Africans or representing other organizations or children, we then um, make amicus submissions, which, which we've done quite a lot over the years, yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, so getting into it, the right to basic education, yes. what is it? What is going on? What does it mean that it's an unqualified yes. right? What does it mean? Look, I mean, we have to start with what Section 29 says. So if you read Section 29, it says that everyone has a right to a basic education, including adult basic education. Um, and then to further education, which the state, through reasonable measures, must take progressive, uh, must make progressively available and accessible. So what you you find then is that interpretation is that Section 29.1a, which is the right to basic education, is not qualified, which means that we say that it must be immediately realizable. Um, there can be a debate, as you know, about Section 29 b about fair education and, 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 um, and the fact that that one is qualified because there's a need to use reasonable measures and to make resources progressively um, available. So the court, um, in cases like Juma Mushid, um which had to do with an eviction of a public school on a private property, confirmed the fact that, as we, we were arguing, that the right is not qualified. The right to a basic education is immediately realizable, meaning that you must ensure that children have um, all the basics that they need to access a basic education. And I'll come back to that because, you know, it might be unqualified on paper, but the realities of today show us how, in practice, it has become qualified. I mean, and so, yeah, yes. yeah. I mean, we are going to talk at length about that. Yes. But I, I, I wanted to also speak about budget constraints. Um, I mean, how can can the government uh, um, speak about budget constraints? Look, I mean, let me give you an example. We were with the Legal Resources Centre. We were the, we did the case about mud schools in the Eastern Cape, and most people know about it, which is about eradicating mud schools. In the end, we had a settlement agreement, which was made a court order, uh, set out timeframes for eradicating mud schools. Um, and there was slow progress. But in the midst of all that, there was one year where the Department of Education in the Eastern Cape returned money to Treasury um, and had not spent money. So when you're looking at issues of resource constraints um, and all those things that sometimes are raised, we have to really look at with with with, with um, you know with closer look, have a look at a closer look at it, and really ask: Are we not having resources, or are we not spending the resources that we we have in a way that advances the right better? And and that is where the question lies. I don't think it's always a question of there's no money. It's about what is the money being spent on and how slow or how fast. 
So one of the big reasons for obviously you, you would think when you have to now rebuild schools is that you have to then have the tender process and all those things that then delay um, the implementation of the plan. And then that then means that then the right of, of the children to access their basic education is then, you know, compromised to an extent. Yeah, you spoke about Juma Masjid. Um, mm. and, uh, <laughs> it's a, it was a very interesting case. But one of the in, the most interesting or probably pro, pro, hasty things that the judge did there was interpreted within the context of the right to education. Couldn't it just be a rule of law case where there's a contract, this contract was enforceable or was not enforceable, and therefore this contract violated the constitution and, and send it back and this is... I mean, give the premises back to the children. Couldn't it be just interpreted in that way rather than interpreting it within the context of the right to education? Yes, I mean, that's the arguments we make. Um, and, you know, there's currently a pending case in the Winston Cape as well about uh, public schools on private properties. It's always a difficult thing um, to to argue for the schools to be retained on the private properties when the private owners have said that they um, they don't want to because the government has not concluded the agreements with them and they're not paying them rent. So that is one way of looking at it, but it's, it's very difficult um, because, you know, you have to do a balancing of rights. The fact that it's immediately realizable also doesn't mean that it trumps other rights. You know how Section 36 requires us to do um, that balancing. I mean, um, it, it's always very, very, very difficult. And, and I think with the Juma Mujid case, the thing is that the, the owners of the property had in, indicated how over time they tried to give the school some time to, you know, the department to make other plans and things like that. So those kind of things, you know, it's always going to be uh, that the context of the case also come, uh, are considered and um, influence the, the, the outcome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But also you, you spoke about the application of Section 36. Does that mean that when interpreting the right to education, uh, we don't use reasonableness, but rather Section 36, unlike all the other socioeconomic rights? Well, I mean, again, there, I think it will be an issue of context. So if, for instance, um, you know, we had the case where the parents, uh, well, the organization that said that they want their children in schools to be subject to corporal punishment because it's it's in line with their religion and all that, but the court had to do a Section 36 analysis of their, their rights versus the rights of uh, of the children. So they that's the approach that the court took. Um, I think when it comes to the issues of resources and it's the department, it's, it's, it will be slightly different. They will try to argue the issues of, of reasonableness. And, and the thing is that... As I said earlier, we, we, we have, you know, the view that it remains our view that the right to basic education is, is immediately realizable. But our government has, for instance, they ratified the International Covenant on Socioeconomic and, and, and um, Cultural Rights. And what, what they did is that they actually have in, in there uh, put, um, uh, I can say, a proviso or qualification where they say that the government of the Republic of South Africa will give for the progressive effect to the right to education um, within the national framework and available resources. So, you know... It becomes a caveat altogether. Yes, it becomes that. And we've actually, some of us in the sector have written, and when we reported to the African Committee of Experts and the UNCRC committee said that that is actually um, a disappointment that our government has put that qualification. 
So, um, and, and to go back to the realities of children. So we say it's unqualified, but we know that there's so many children with disabilities that are not in school. Um, you know, we have well, well uh, white paper number six, which is supposed to be the one that guides how education for children with disabilities is implemented. And it's taken long to get to really getting some work done around that. And resources are always raised as constraints. I mean, we had three children that would present at the beginning of the year with disabilities, where we had to fight to then nail together support in schools. So, you know, to say it's unqualified, yes, it's like that it's on paper, and we're trying to fight for that when we're arguing our cases. But we, we are, you know, we, we are not oblivious to the fact that there are other ways that the writers actually become qualified. Yeah. And we need to ask ourselves how we continuously try to undo that. You know, you know, some proponents of, and I understand uh, perhaps you, you probably fall in the school of thought that doesn't like the minimum core, but some proponents of the minimum core have actually argued that with the minimum core, taking into cognizance the charter of the, of the rights of the child, it would be kind of easy uh, to, to protect children um, whilst we have highlighted what, what is the minimum core in, in, in terms of enforcing the right itself, unlike mm. just leaving it to litigation every single time it needs to be defined what uh, is... Do you understand what I'm saying there? Yeah, no, I, I get you. Um, I mean, we always take the view that it's, it's better to be flexible and always have the context of the particular children involved. But I get you. I think one other way is that we're trying to have, not necessarily minimum core, but things like the norms and standards for education, which we know, um, you know, um, equal education and other organizations were working hard on. Those are kind of other ways to say, well, if you're going to have, to, if you're going to say that you are realizing the right to education, you must have these norms and standards. So there must be a proper structure. Uh, in accordance with the, with the norms and standards. There must be so many toilets for so many children. Um, there must be so many teachers, all those kind of things. So I think there's a different way maybe of achieving that without having a, a, like a general um, minimum core. But again, there we see that, you know, even with the guidelines, we're not implementing them. We had another child dying from drowning in a pit toilet. Yes, two. After the norms and standards, you know. I mean, yes, I mean, recently, apart from Michael, we have a recent case this yes, year. You know, if we were implementing the, the guidelines, the norms and standards, we shouldn't be having this um, situation arising again. Um, and I think we have to ask ourselves very hard questions about the right to education. I'm very concerned, um, as I said um, every day in my office, that um, not only on education, just broadly on, on children's lives, but the thing is that with education, um, we the inequality continues as well. You go to the Eastern Cape, some children are still fighting for having proper classrooms, and then you go to Houting and the, you know, yes, there are other issues about admissions, but children, they are getting tablets. Uh, so we also now having this unequal society mm, mm. that we're perpetuating. And, it, you know, it raises some difficult questions that we need to start asking ourselves about. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you, you're speaking about facilities. And I think that these cases that have come forward on textbooks, on furniture, on have highlighted the importance of facilities. Yeah. But wouldn't you say that, in especially in the cases of the textbooks and so forth and understand that um, you have not functioned on them uh, explicitly but from your reading wouldn't you say that in most of those cases it was more of a another rule of law case unlike uh, 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 an interpretation of the right to basic education itself because I think one of the major debates is that the right itself has not been interpreted but has rather been interpreted through these norms and standards and through these policies yeah. and it leads to another rule of law uh, rather uh, justiciability. 
Yeah, no, no, I, it's, it's, it's true. It's true. I think the approach, if the approach was different, you, you would then get into it. So if you're saying that a person has a right to education um, as per Section 291A, what do you need? So, you know, internationally there's this thing about accessibility, availability, adaptability, so they're the four A's of education. Yeah. And you would need all of them then for it to, 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 to actually mean something for the, the children that you, you are litigating for or advocating for. So you would need, you need the physical physical infrastructure, you need the education quality to be good, you will need to, you know, um, teachers to have been trained, so you need all those sorts of, you know, uh, uh, all these elements to be present. But you're right, it ends up being about, you know, uh, rule of law and it ends up not getting into if you were to provide, and I, I guess as you were asking about minimum core kind of a thing, it's, it's, it's sort of like that idea, so if you were to say you're providing uh, an education that complies with Section 291A, what does it entail? Mm. And we haven't gotten that far. We might get there now. I mean, you know, we were still trying to sort out my school, the infrastructure. And the ACT Cape, again, there was a furniture case as well, you know, because children were sitting on the floors, all those kind of... So we're still trying to sort out those those um, those structural things. And, and, and I think the problem is that we need to see them as being interdependent and interlinked mm. and not doing, you know... Um, just sort of, you know, sorting one, one, one at a time. And I think the time is coming for that. We, we realize that you have to, to, to fight on all fronts to make it a reality for children. Are you optimistic about that? Final question. <laughs> Look, I, I am in a sense that I'm prepared to continue to be litigating in this area, um, you know, going forward. And as I mentioned, and I'm going to keep mentioning it, the children with disabilities, children in, 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 um, um, with mental health um, issues that are not in school that are written off. And that's also one key area that we're looking into. But generally, I, I am optimistic. I have to be. I'm not planning to go and do any other work than this work. So we, we will continue to, to, to litigate, to advocate, and to engage with government the opportunity where the opportunity is there to try and, and influence how things are done. Um, but the important thing is that, you know, um, there needs to be... Um, the speed, a speeding up of trying to resolve these things okay, so and, and so respecting so children's rights uh, generally. We need to start, you know, um, reminding people to respect that the, the, the officials, the parents, everybody. I mean, how many children miss school because of our protest action? How many schools have been burned because of protest action? So I think we need a broader dialogue on, on how we value education. And I think this month, being June 16 again, we saw... Um, there being an admission that live bullets were used against children who were protesting and they were protesting the fact that the schools that the school that were, were they were in had shortage of teachers mm. and you kind of feel a bit like disparaged like you like you know uh, but at the same time we're like you know okay we're gonna try keep and pick them up keep trying. yeah yeah, yeah. i mean we have uh, to. Ms. Karabo Oza, thank you very much. That is the Deputy Director of the Centre for Child Law right here at Law Focus. Thank you very much for your invaluable contribution this evening. Thank you. In, you're still listening to Law Focus. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFM88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus. Point, point of information. Welcome back to Wow FM 88.1 and this is a point of legal information right here with me on the airwaves with Basil Shrenda. We're also going to uh, speak to Ms. Zipoka Azi Sisilana uh, who is a candidate at um, um, at Equal Education Law Centre. Um, Ms. Zipoka Azi, uh, welcome to the show. 
Thank you so much, Basil. Uh, Thank this, you for having me. This evening we are, we are discussing uh, the right to education and some of the, the inroads, particularly basic education, and some of the inroads that which we have seen from a legal perspective. Um, okay. And we would like to get input from Equal Education as to what what you've done thus far to advance the right to education, um, especially when it comes to furniture and some of the other. Uh, but but rather let's let's get into what Equal Education has done thus far to advance this right ever since the inception of it. Okay. So the Equal Education Law Centre is basically um, divided into three compartments. We deal with movement lawyering where we provide support to activists and campaigns for social justice, more particularly in relation to education law. And then we also have our community lawyering, which is basically our law clinic where we assist communities and learners um, from the day-to-day uh, problems that they have in, in education law. So we have uh, learners who come to us with regards to corporal punishment, issues of um, admission fee exemptions where they are being denied um, the right to um, uh, education. So basically they come through emails, telephones, and via Twitter and Facebook. And then we also have our legal research where we make submissions to the relevant department. So basically those are like the three compartments in which um, the law center has assisted in the in, uh, progressive uh, right to education. Yeah. And, and so particularly in relation to, first let's start, what, what is the right to basic education? What, what, uh, what are the... How how does it work? What are the elements of it? Okay, so the right to basic education is, protect, is protected by Section Twenty Nine, Subsection One A of the Constitution, and what based, uh, and that includes adult uh, education such as ABED centres. And then what that basically means is that uh, the right to basic education is immediately realizable. It's um, an unqualified right. The meaning that unlike further education, which is uh, covered by sec, uh, subsection B of uh, section 291, um, that section does not, that means that the, 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 the state does not have a duty to provide further education to everyone immediately, whereas with basic education, it's a immediately realizable right. And as well as um, with further education, it only has a duty to take reasonable measures over time and within uh, available resources and that is not the same with basic education so it's immediately realizable to learners and it encompasses a lot of aspects of which i'm sure we'll discuss throughout the interview so now that you've you, you've highlighted to us that the right to education is an unqualified right therefore meaning that it's it's immediately realizable and there's no there's no reason to to there's no reason that the the department can rather say that we don't have enough budget or anything of that nature but how would that now connect with because i would imagine somebody would say the right to education is 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 your time in class and therefore no one can impede with that time but how does that connect to other things like scholar transport uh textbooks and so forth so we've had there have been judgments that have been handed down to specifically explain the fact that just giving a child education is not enough. There are other compartments which are attached to it that are very important for the development of children. And so you have issues such as color transport. Uh, we recently had a case in the Kizaren uh, region, which is called in, in the Mucha area. Mm. What's happening in that area is that there were learners who were walking for like hours, let's say two hours, 
to school and another two hours back from uh, back home from school. So the issue there is that the learners were walking to school for a number of uh, kilometers. They get to school, they're tired, which then impacts their concentration in school, which also actually uh, impacts their uh, performance at school, and then they're not able to concentrate because the children are tired, um, they're sleeping in class, so therefore they're not able to perform to the best of their ability. So that, in essence, um, affects their their education. It affects their education, and as well as textbooks, you can. How you can bring a child to school, but if you don't give them the necessary material that's required for them to perform to the best of their ability and ensure that they properly develop, then if there's no textbook, then the children cannot perform in school. So that is all encompassed within the right to basic education. I mean, um, I, I hope I'm not being pedantic here, but I mean, you're speaking about Juma Masjid, I think. That is the case yes. that you're talking about. And in, yes, that, in yes. that particular case, one can note that the government itself had passed policy to deliver textbooks, although they did not, uh, they applied that policy flexibly, if, in my understanding. And so when it went to litigation, counsel argued in court that in actual fact they shouldn't have applied flexibly. They had to, uh, they had to deliver all of these textbooks uh, w- with without thinking about whether they'll do it in the next budget or whatever. Now, yeah. In, the, in that particular case, wouldn't it be argued that it was more of a case of legality than rather the interpretation of the right to education itself? It was. It was. I, I think let's let's start here in the fact that sometimes what what happens is, and one of the biggest criticisms is that policies are put in place, but without thinking about the realities that children have to face. So, for example, you have, for example, the scholar transport case that I was referring to. It, the national policy makes example, for instance, there are sections there which state that uh, learners who have, they will not be provided scholar transport if they're, ha- if they're within a region that has um, access to public transport. Therefore, not considering aspects such as the fact that children do not have the finances to support this. So sometimes there are policies that are in place that don't properly take into account the difficulties that society, especially the poor community, um, has issues with. So in in terms of how policy has a shortfall, it's it's particularly in the fact that sometimes they don't add um, the faces and narratives of poor communities, and that's where it becomes a problem in implementation. And and that's how it got to violate the right. So would 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 you say that that the enforce, enforcement of the right to basic education was e- equivalent to other socioeconomic rights, particularly in relation to reasonableness review? Yes, in 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 as far as I'd say the implementation is concerned, I'd say that, and that is on the part of sometimes the 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 state, because what you also need to understand is that the whole aspect of corporate governance, there needs to be communication with uh, the departments themselves. So, for example, if you're going to talk about, uh, for example, the provision of, okay, I keep going back to this, but scholar transport. Scholar transport is not a one department thing. Treasury needs to be involved because they provide money. Um, The Department of Education needs to talk to the, the Department of Transport. So it's not a, sometimes the delays are caused by the fact that there's no, um, there's, there's no cooperative governance. And this was specifically highlighted in the, one of the cases that we have in the norms, that, uh, norms and standards case that we recently had in the, 
Eastern Cape, yeah. where we're currently awaiting judgment. So one of the things that we say there is that the, the department is trying to distance itself from accountability in the fact that they include, include clauses such as if the other departments aren't coming to the table, then we cannot be held accountable. So it cannot be that we're sitting in a place where we're saying, if you're not doing your job, then I can't do my job, whereas they're not doing enough to ensure that the other departments are coming to the table. So the issue mainly that... Uh, from my point of view, has been cooperative governance and they're just not doing anything to ensure that the, 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 the this right indeed is unqualified. So so you, uh, I, what I'm what I'm getting from you is that you you are arguing that there's there's an issue administratively, so it's more in the yes. practice than in the doctrine yes. of law itself. It, it is law. Like I said, in the norms and standards, it, it, it was us challenging the law, saying that the regulations need to be tighter. Oh, there okay. needs to be more okay. accountability. There's, there's issue in there's, there are issues in some of the the the, the 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 law itself, but also in the implementation. So we also took uh, problems uh, that were in the uh, national. Uh, policies that provides for scholar transport because it was quite problematic. Like mm-hmm. we said, there are policies that just really don't capture the narrative of poor communities and therefore when you apply them practically you find that learners' rights are just infringed because there is not much thought process that goes into it and their voices sometimes unheard in these policies. I mean, now that you said that, I'm actually interested in this question. Are you a proponent of the minimum core, or you're okay? You're okay with the current approach that we are taking, uh, with in relation to socio-economic rights? In answering this question, can I not answer this question because then <laughs> it's it's a tricky one because it is, it is. you you because as 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 we try by all means to get to a point where. Uh, more needs to be done, but we we can safely say that more needs to be done in circumstances. Uh, but there is a chance from the department. Yes, there are circumstances where they 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 are trying, but they could try harder. And that's why we're here to say, listen, here are the flaws in the laws that you have. Here are the flaws that you have in the implementation. So it's an all rounder where. For instance, with inclusive education, where they're trying to introduce inclusive education in schools for learners with uh, disabilities. Sometimes, for instance, there are practical problems with um, the teachers not being properly trained. So that's when we step in and say, listen, I see where you're going with this. This is a good aspect, and I see what you're trying to achieve by this. But here's the problem. You might want to fix it here and there. So, yeah. Okay, I hear that. And so, are you are you are you are you optimistic about the future? Do you think that we will get to a point where, every, especially in the rural areas, where the, the right to basic education is pro- properly finished? Because we have seen some of the, the factors that lead to absenteeism, like like the like scholar transport, as you said, uh, textbooks, as has been seen as well. It was one of the major debates in court. Um, we have seen many other issues, like of about furniture in class. Some students mm. don't have classes. Sometimes there are no teachers. Mm. We've also seen that in litigation as well, where where SGB, uh, SGB was forced to to hire teachers. So the thing is, from 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 my view, is that litigation is not necessarily always the answer. Yeah. I mean, but it's it's first of all there are costs involved that go 
um, with litigation, money that could be used as in other um, aspects in developing the country and ensuring that uh, resources are available for communities. But honestly, I, 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 I sense progress, but we're not moving fast enough. Mm. And hence why we're saying that with, as I mentioned earlier, the norms and standards, the regulations, there were timelines that were attached to that. And now they're, one of the clauses in which they're trying to evade is the fact that they want to ensure that there's like perpetual pushing of deadlines as opposed to holding them accountable. The department that is, when I refer to they, yeah. um, the department um, wants to carry on pushing deadlines. So I feel like we could be going faster into uh, into a place where uh, learners' rights cannot be infringed with re- in relation to basic education. Uh, but I see us moving forward, but we could be moving faster. Because if you look at areas such as, and I've had the... Uh, I've had the opportunity to go to schools in the Eastern Cape. And when you see the conditions of those schools, you almost, you're, you're shocked because you, you cannot understand why in 2018 things are so bad. But that's why we're here, I guess. And we're trying to um, fight for justice for learners in that regard. But more could be done. It doesn't always need to go to court. But if it needs to, then that needs to be the case because learners are really suffering. Oh, Mrs. Lana, thank you very much for your invaluable contribution. We couldn't have learned any any more than that. Thank you so much for having me, Basil. Have a great, have a great, have a great evening. You're still listening to Law thank Focus. Law Focus on Eighty-eight point one point of information. Will children actually make it to school? Will we have pregnant children supported at school? Will we have enough transport to take children to school who can make it to school? Will we have enough food for those who are hungry? in school will the right to basic education be the 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 vehicle to the support of many children out there who can get to school can the jurisprudence do enough these are the many questions that you south africans are asking wherever you are sitting and the answers to them are not clear cut yes and no perhaps a slight nuance yes and no perhaps there's a gray area somewhere fundamentally it's how, as a country, we come together in understanding our role in feathering the life of a child and in interpreting the right of a child. Now, the future of our children is at the hands of the manner in which we educate them in order for them to fulfill any kind of dream they want to fulfill out there. Now, the infrastructure and the facilities at school are not the all-in-all, all, but they are the fundamental of how a child interprets and reinterprets their environment and their circumstances. Now, tonight's show highlighted how important textbooks are, highlighted how important furniture is at school, highlighted how classrooms, how all of these facilities that which help kids study at school um, are important. Now, the right to basic education in and of itself it's not necessarily only sitting in class, but it's also having all the necessary equipment to equip a child to understand and to study like everyone else. Now, hence the importance of all of these uh, inclusions of disabled children, a, a curriculum that is equipped to train 
those who cannot study on their own. That is students with uh, uh, special needs, special educational needs. But as you listened to uh, the Deputy Director of Centre for Child Law, Ms. Karabo Oza, you would have understood that it is important to reinterpret the right to education, uh, not just as, a, as an unqualified right, which is thankfully to Juma Masjid, that is already settled, but to understand the right to education as a right that which encompasses all factors that which enable a child to sit in class, learn, write, and write those exams and pass. Now, the, a similar view has been given um, by uh, Ms. Zipogazi Sisilana that understanding the right to basic education is understanding the circumstances of the child in class. And if those circumstances are enabled such that a child is in class, then the right to basic education has been fulfilled. Now, then the open question is possibility. How possible is that? How possible is it to fund each and every school in the country um, to, in order to finish the right to basic education? But it has been made clear that the, that the budget constraints are not, are not, in, are not, are not, are not a defense for, 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 for the department to say that this is why we are not finishing the right to basic education. That has been declared already. Uh, in our jurisprudence it has been declared already in our jurisprudence that every student every student has to have textbooks right it has been declared already that that facilities have to be in process to be fixed and and so forth now we we even looked at cases like michael komape and how uh, how these children have actually drowned uh, in 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 toilet facilities that which were not renovated and how that connected to the right to basic education. Now, one of our major grapples was how the right to basic education has always been fulfilled through the rule of law, but has never been interpreted as a right on its own. Now, that is a very problematic thing in and of itself, because then it does not allow room to give content to the right to basic education. But in our understanding between me and you, law, fo- law focus listener, is that the right to basic education is not, an, is not a qualified right, meaning that it has to be immediately realized. Uh, that the government cannot come and have a defense of budget constraints, unlike Section 29, Subsection 1, Paragraph B, which is that the right to further education has to be given uh, within necessary budget means. And that would mean that would be tertiary education, meaning that the government can on- only finish it to the extent that they can. Um, and other forms of rights, like the right to housing and the, li- and the right to... Uh, to to water and to and to and to food and social grants, those can be given within budget constraints. But the right to basic education can never be given within budget constraints. Uh, we have we have said here, and we have listened to Ms. Zibogas, we have listened to Ms. Karabu, and we have learned uh, as much as we can about how this right has to be finished and has to be interpreted within the context of the constitution and within the context of other forms of legislation like norms and standards and other governmental policies and how some policies have to be brought in line with an understanding of immediate realization like for example the government the policy that government is given on transportation had to be reinterpreted or rather had to be struck unconstitutional to the extent that and it limited um, transport to certain kinds of individuals and left out others, whereas that was not in in line or in consonance with the experiences that which uh, some children experience, or rather that the experience of, th- of those children that which transport is given to. Now, that understanding gives us a clear uh, picture of the right to basic education. There's still some long way to go, and we have learned that this evening. 
uh, we can take it further from here. Too much has been said. Too much still can be said. But here at Law Focus at Vets Radio Academy, we are taking it this far. And from our producer, Ms. Bulali Diakopu, who has made this evening possible, uh, we thank you very much. And we also thank you from, we, th- we also thank our technical production, Ms. Kutwano Gwinch, Mr. Kutwano Gwinch Serame. And from me, Bezal Shirenda, remember that if it's unlawful, if it's not legal, then it's unlawful. It's law and it's serious. Have a great evening. Listening to Law Focus? Connect with VowFam88.1 on Twitter and Facebook. Be your own lawyer. Law Focus on VowFam88.1. Point of information. Law Focus Podcast.